Good morning, food curious people. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and we want to make sure that you turn your clocks um, forward one hour, spring forward, it's if called. You, if you didn't do it now. Yeah, and then tune back to make sure you got the rest of the program. <laughs> means otherwise you might have missed something and you don't want to miss um, a single word of On The Menu Radio. There's no uh, well, today we're actually going to deal um, with issues. We're going to yeah. always deal with issues, but it seems in the current climate, uh, uh, world climate, Issues have become very important rather than just personalities. Um, the first thing we're going to deal with is um, it's called Restaurant After Hours, that is addressing the stress and mental health of people in the, in the um, restaurant and service business. And we're going to be talking to Erin um, Reif Snyder. Who's part of the group? Really dedicated to making things better and after the last year or so we've been through getting making it a good deal better is a great idea so here we go with Erin well nowadays we have so many issues to discuss discuss Erin Reichschneider is it yes Reichschneider that's correct yeah and um you you were talking to us about restaurant after hours. Just what exactly is that? Um, restaurant after hours is a nonprofit that was founded by Zia Sheikh, um, who is a chef, uh, and he founded the group after his own kind of struggle with mental health in the restaurant industry, working as a chef. And he initially founded the group as a way to. Um, provide in, uh, mental health resources to in- industry workers at no cost. And we are now kind of evolving the services to be able to provide um, direct mental health resources as well. So um, what I basically, my part in the group um, or in Restaurant After Hours is I have helped um, Zia and our other board members kind of start a support group um, that is completely free for anyone who would like to join, but is aimed at addressing kind of the specific mental health issues that restaurant workers and anyone within the hospitality industry would face. So we aim to um, give a psychoeducation takeaway, which is a fancy way of saying just some like mental health education that is specifically directed towards folks who work in the industry. So trying to take classic mental health education pieces and coping techniques and fit it to um, fit kind of the daily lives of folks who work in the industry. Great. Now, are you a a psychology um, or a therapist? So I um, finished my master's in bilingual mental health counseling this past May, and I have also an undergraduate degree in um, counseling psychology. So I have about six years of formal psycho- psych- psychological education. Uh, I am not currently a practicing therapist, uh, but I like to um, I, I like to help out uh, doing activations like like this, starting you know more community building and psychoeducation type work is is what my, where my interest lies. 
Well, you're in the right industry. I mean, we've had two uh, chef friends kill themselves. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, and the well, it's, it's terrible. I mean, but it's like the industry is rife with issues like that. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, just data about the industry need. So we have collected some um, kind of primary data, and I don't like to make big kind of, I should say, assumptions from our data because it is not uh, a random sample. It is, is not collected, you know, with the intention of, of producing scholarly work, so it's harder to say exactly um, it's harder to say, you know, an exact kind of empirical, this is what the industry needs, but from the preliminary research that we have done, it, it at least shows that folks who respond to our mental health survey who are working in the industry, there are a wide variety of mental health concerns that they have, but typically the most common ones are depression and anxiety, which is, you know, kind of, uh, which seem to be a little bit higher than the general population. Um, and the everybody now, is general. Guess. I'm, I'm thinking I'm that all of those, uh, all those um, issues that um, are rife throughout the industry must be greatly magnified um, and with the, the the state of the economy and the opening, mm -hmm. the uncertainty of of the restaurant community, and uh, I mean Definitely. I can't even imagine. It is. I, I would say that kind of you know restaurant after hours was started prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic has only greatly increased, you know, the, the issues that were, were plaguing restaurant workers and hospitality workers prior to the pandemic. Um, there's, you know, always been, I think, a high incidence of mental health concerns within this population, but, you know, at exactly what you said, the uncertainty and the stress that, the, that service workers are facing is extremely high at the moment. And it is hard, you know, anyone can see that that would have an effect on, on someone. When you, when your job is very insecure, when even at your job you are dealing with, you know, health concerns, concerns that someone, you know, a restaurant guest or, you know, any guest that you're working with will be, you know, put you in danger. Um, and that basically, you know, all, all that to say that it is, I think the, the environment in restaurants right now and just in hospitality in general is extremely stressful. Oh, I would think so. It was stressful yeah. enough before all this. <laughs> yeah, definitely was stressful enough before. I, I um, worked in hotels and then restaurants for a long time, uh, which is kind of what led me back to, to my initial interest of psychology because um, it's, it, I, it's you know you work so intimately with people and uh, it really you know I think a lot of folks in the industry are there to help and because they enjoy service um, but sometimes service you know restaurant service it's it can't go as far as you would like so kind of what ultimately led me back to, to counseling. Well, how, how have you structured your organization? Um, so structure, Zia is extremely involved. He's our founder. Um, he, I would say that him and another one of our board members, Sarah, we are the three of us are have kind of partnered with um, with each other to create the framework of the support group and also the implementation. 
Um, so currently we're running a support group every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Um, we're running this group for 12 weeks, which then will kind of, you know, solicit feedback from the folks who've, who've been um, in the support group and, you know, kind of decide is the framework we've been using the one that we want to stick with? Can we start another night of support group? Is there some, you know, maybe sometime in the morning? Um, how, what other services would folks who've been coming to our support group enjoy? Um, so kind of, I would say that's where the majority of our focus is, is at the moment. Um, but we are also, Zia is really involved in um, fundraising for the, for the nonprofit and also I think just looking towards the future and kind of our larger goals of what we would like to eventually tackle. Um, but at the moment, we're mostly focusing on the support group. Well, where are you physically located? Um, I am in New York City, and Zia and our, all of our board members are in New York City. So we run the group kind of, you know, in the New York City, with New York City kind of as the center in terms of the, the industry, the restaurant industry, but it is, a, you know, we want it to be applicable to any restaurant industry worker or any industry worker across the country. So that is, um, our goal is to be as inclusive as possible. Great. Um, are you the only organization out there that's doing this? We are not. Um, there are a lot of organizations who are trying to kind of tackle this, uh, I would say this issue in different ways. Um, we, I think, are the organization that focuses the most on specific mental health issues. Um, but, for example, Benson. Hello? Hello? Okay. Robin. Yeah. I think we've lost her. That's, that's what it seemed to me, too. I mean, if we leave, if we leave, the, if we leave the line line open for a couple of minutes, maybe she'll realize that we lost signal and calling again. And otherwise, how will we? There we go. There we are. You're, you're back? Hello? Are you back, Aaron? What do we do now, Robert? Is there some way of saving it or what to do? I mean, I can stop. Oh, I, I can stop. I can stop the recording, and hopefully that will capture what we have already. Well, you have to save it because remember we did yes. this before and it didn't work. Yes, I know. I know. I know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, we were talking about uh, other organizations involved with okay. issues. And, uh, and uh, somebody we have interviewed previously is Kat Kinsman, who has a chef with issues. Chef yes. with issues. And how, how does your organization differ from that one? Um, chef with issues, I think, has done such a wonderful job of providing a space for people in the industry, and specifically chefs, to kind of share um, their experiences. I would say where we differ from Chefs with Issues is that once we are, we've kind of moved away from having like a solely online forum. So we're trying to connect with each other and folks who are suffering in the industry 
um, as much as possible face-to-face. So we are doing, you know, video calls, um, you know, try, just trying to chat with people live as much as possible. Um, I would say that's the main place where we differ, and we also um, are providing an intentional psychoeducation program. So the, you know, one of our main kind of takeaways from the support group framework is to provide kind of mental health education that folks would typically get in like a therapy relationship um, and providing that education to the general restaurant public and also creating that education or retooling that education to be very specific to the industry. Um, So like I've gone through and chosen techniques and different themes that I think are specifically related to the issues people in the industry face. Um, and kind of structuring our groups to chat about those themes and kind of learn together the different techniques that they can use. Now, yeah. what, what, what does the psychiatry profession think about what you're doing? Um, I, I haven't gotten much the Well, psychiatry is, is, I would say, very different from... What we do, psychiatry is mostly based in medication, um, which I think, you know, is a really valid, viable part of solving kind of any population, you know, suffering on a larger scale. Um, But we aren't currently, you know, we are currently only able to provide kind of like a supportive space. I think the goal eventually would be to be able to provide more integrated services, so individual counseling, individual services, you know, holistic nutrition care, those types of services that can be really beneficial when someone is suffering from a mental health concern. But at the moment we are, you know, kind of newer, so we're just focusing on providing a supportive space. Um, So I hope that both the psychology and psychiatry professions would be really happy that uh, this population is getting some extra care where I, I believe in the past it hasn't really gotten that much focus um, within the kind of academic worlds of psychology and psychiatry. Oh, well, it's, it, it is kind of it's a different um, sphere altogether. I mean, a lot of problems that you will be encountering um, involved with, uh, are involved with um, drug use, um, abuse of alcohol, that kind of thing as well. I mean, it's a yeah. medical issue. Hmm? Yeah, definitely. I think um, we aren't in particular focusing on substance use. I think you're you're completely right in that um, restaurant workers do ha- can have a higher incidence of substance use issues. Um, but our kind of focus is to to really address the underlying mental health concerns that provoke substance use issues and also just um, I basically address mental health in general instead of being kind of specifying on one issue in particular. Right. Well, there's plenty of issues surrounding that. I mean, we were talking about Kat Kinsman. Um, She wrote a book called Hello, Anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she's medicated. Um, and you know, you you can't get into that unless you have a medical degree, right? 
So, yes. I mean, every, I would say every person who trains in counseling or therapy, um, regardless if it's not within, um, like, medical school, has a pretty deep knowledge of psychopharmacology because uh-huh. it is, you know, a pretty important part of, um, is an important part of, can be an important part of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that, you know, my goal with with Restaurant After Hours in kind of a, from a clinical perspective is to, you know, come from a strength-based approach and provide support and psychoeducation, kind of build on what, you know, internal resources folks already have. And if they need a higher level of care, um, it would be my responsibility to try to connect them to that care, not provide that care myself. So that right. is an important well, part of it. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I was uh, wondering, you know, uh, could there be, out uh, of this terrible mess, could there be a, um, a, a positive effect? Because I, I, I see it moving away from this uh, celebrity chef centricism, you know. Um, maybe if there's not that kind of pressure to be a TV chef, and that might take off some of that pressure that's in, embedded in the industry. You know, I hope, um, I really hope that, that that does come to pass. I, I think that there's a really wonderful opportunity for hospitality systems in general to kind of rethink how we provide service um, and and I think there's a really great opportunity to create really healthy community-based workspaces moving forward um, because there has been a lot more attention on, you know, the stress that restaurant workers face exactly. where there, you know, this, there hasn't been in the past. Um, and I think there is a lot – I think there's a lot of motivation – from many different stakeholders across the industry to try to address these problems and create, you know, a more sustainable workspace. So I, I really hope that that comes, I really hope that that happens. Uh, I think there's a really good opportunity. A lot of people are talking about these issues and a lot of people are invested in these issues uh, across the board. So I, I hope that, you know, restaurant after hours, we can continue to kind of push that conversation and continue to communicate to restaurant owners, to chefs, um, to anyone who works in the industry, that this is a crucial part of having a successful restaurant is making sure that your staff, your staff is safe. And yeah, I think we're getting there. I mean, I think that people are finally getting that message, and I'm glad that, that you're contributing to uh, sending and expanding the, the range of that message, Erin. Um, congratulate you on, on attacking something that's very large and complex <laughs> and particularly at this time kind of crazy mad yeah. <laughs> i mean we're we're just we're just a drop in the in the pool. yeah i know you but know, it's still I, important I, I, any little bit i i hope is is helping that's you know that's that's our goal is, is to just you know do start with just one thing and continue to build on that momentum to hopefully be able to help at a very large scale well, you sound very sensible, and I thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. And yeah, um, of keep course. Us and sorry, about, sorry about the technical, <laughs> the technical okay. difficulties. Um, I will definitely keep you posted. Um, hopefully, 
we'll we'll find a way to you know expo- expose more members of the press to the work that we're doing. Um, and thanks so much for for reaching out to us. We're so happy yeah. to have you know have the it's opportunity. Something to I've had direct today. experience with and friends, and so it was a natural for us to to talk to you. So thank you, and I hope to talk to you again. I hope to talk to you too. I hope to talk to you as well. Have a great day, both of you. Thanks, Erin. Thank you. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Listeners, we we have Gary Paul Nabhan or Navian, depending on how uh, you you want to approach it, um, who is in himself extremely interesting, fascinating, in fact. Uh, He is an ecumenical Franciscan brother and an agrarian activist, which is why we uh, cornered him for this interview. that Gary, you have so many awards. Um, <laughs> what do you think? I mean, what hat do you wear? You seem to have many hats. Well, I live down by the Mexican border, so I wear a sombrero most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but you. The point you... Is like, everyone in the food world I know is sort of. Uh, uh, multifaceted person. If you're a farmer, you also have to be a good business person, uh, uh, a scholar of the plants you're growing, and it that just sort of comes natural if you're involved in food. You get interested in various different topics, and for me, because I think food is sacramental and sacred and, and not just a, a commodity, um, I don't at all mind... Uh, thinking about it in its uh, most sacred context and also in its most uh, mundane or workaday concepts either. Well, I mean, you know what you're talking about here because it says on the back of one of your books that you keep orchards, gardens, and greenhouses at your home in Patagonia, Arizona. That's a lot. That's correct. I have five and a half acres here with about 120 varieties of fruit and nut trees and about 50 varieties of edible succulent plants like uh, prickly pears and agaves, as well as maybe a dozen spice crops. So once someone said to me, don't become an agriculture professor unless you've Farms. Uh, why would you try to treat uh, uh, treat your students as uh, as someone who needs to be educated if you haven't educated yourself on the practicalities of farming before you teach them? And I took that to heart, and so I tried my hand at raising sheep, at uh, growing heritage grains. And now I'm mostly involved with perennial. Uh, oh. Well, now, um, 
it's complicated. I mean, how long have you been a Franciscan brother? I've been a Franciscan brother for about 20 years, uh, but I I have been involved with, um, let me say, the Franciscan family for much longer than that. And, and it's in part because uh, the areas where I first worked kind of in agricultural extension with nonprofits where Indian reservations were nearly everyone was Catholic, uh, like a lot of the Southwest is. And so uh, meeting people in, in their own context and learning from them uh, both um, practically and spiritually was this great gift that the farmers I worked with in my 20s gave to me, perhaps without even realizing how much it would affect me. Well, I first um, got familiar with you when uh, your book came out, Cuban Camels and Caravans. And um, it's subtitled A Spice Odyssey. Um, <laughs> I'm going to back up a little bit. I, I want to know who you envision you're writing for with these books. I'm looking at two books, the one I just said, which is really, um, it's it's all about the spice um, roots and uh, also about uh, cultural fusion and, um, yeah, uh, and then the other one, though, is um, Jesus for Farmers and Fishers, Justice for All Those Marginalized by Our Food System. Now, who were these two different audiences you were writing for? I mean, I should mention that you are also an agrarian activist. That's well, thank you for that question. Yes, let me say it this way: that uh, Claude Levi Strauss, a great uh, French anthropologist, said that uh, food is not only good to eat; it's good to think. <laughs> that I find um, food to be one of the most intellectually fascinating uh, topics or elements in our lives. And so to me the joy is finding readers who both love food and its diversity and its many flavors and fragrances and textures, but also want to know its history and who gains and who loses uh, by growing food in different ways for different um, markets. And so my, my grandfather was a Lebanese fruit peddler, and I always had this uh, special relationship with him where he taught me when each kind of fruit was perfectly ripe and ready for eating. So I learned a lot of practical things from from him, but I also learned that food is sacramental. That when our family came together in in prayer or in holiday, food was essential to the celebration of the sacred as well. And to me, it's not an either or situation. Like food is a commodity or a sacred thing; it's both at the same time. And I tend to write for people who are 
interested not just in eating and preparing food themselves, but really love the, to learn more about the role that food has in the sweep of human history. Yeah. Gary, I mentioned earlier on before before we started recording that we had the wonderful experience of enjoying lunch on Easter Sunday at a project which was run by a Franciscan brother of yours, I guess. I, I suppose you're all a brotherhood. And and he, he ran this fine dining restaurant with rooms people would stay in and we read about it, and we said, well, we're going to be passing through this area on Easter Sunday. We ought to go to church, <laughs> which, which, which I will admit to our listeners is not, is not something we regularly do, but in this case we felt like we should. Well, I think that's a, a beautiful story in the sense that uh, that those Franciscan hands – uh, we're giving you a way to uh, celebrate Easter palpably. <laughs> that uh, uh, that that restaurant was probably your church that day. And, it was. It you know, was our church. Walked, <laughs> it was the first I church walked, we'd come uh, to for quite a long time. Miles, I walked 240 miles through Italy uh, for a book for Penguin Press, uh, Songbirds, Truffles, and Wolves. Uh, on my way to Assisi, but it, which is it, gorgeous. The book is as much about the food history of Italy and how it affected the foods we eat in America as it is about following the path of St. Francis. Right. Well, there's, of course, everybody, no matter what what their faith is, uh, comments on the special spirit of Assisi that it's, uh, it's, the whole place is saturated with the spiritualism, isn't it? It is, and it's also embedded with some of the best food in Italy. One time I had the wonderful opportunity to uh, take my uh, uh, family there, including elders, and I, I arrived a day earlier and went out in the woods with truffle hunters to get truffles to bring back. Oh, my. them with a meal of uh, freshly made pasta and freshly harvested truffles. And, no, uh, we, we, so we stayed in Assisi for several, for several days on one of our trips to Italy. But w w there was an earthquake, right? And they, they, they had to put the city back together again. Oh, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, yes, crazy. and that's still going on. It's, Is that still going on? I was, okay. I was well, trying well, to do uh, a day in silence, and it was all jackhammers. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's back up and, and okay, the, the Cuban Camel and Caravans book. Um, you approach it from the point of view of all these individual spices, and you talk all about the history of the the, the spices and the, the blending of traditions and the roots and so forth and so on. But your underlying premise is, is kind of different, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's that, that globalization, as we think of it, didn't start with uh, Columbus discovering America. 
but spices were one of the first commodities traded beyond your locality across the mountains to another landscape or another country. And that the history of spices is really the true history of globalization, how we've uh, traded these very peculiar plants that are easily transported because they're so potent and uh, uh, in some cases minute, like saffron threads, and yet they're the highest priced commodities in the world per pound. So there's this very interesting way that spice trade uh, emerged across the Silk Road and the Frankincense Trail and the, the spice trails uh, from Central Africa up to the Mediterranean. And we learn a lot about uh, the cultural context, not just the uses of these spices, by following those trails. And one time I met a spice trader in Afghanistan who said that in the old days, a good spice trader would have to go and apprentice at every place where the spices that he or she sold had been grown and that he knew the names of every spice that he sold in eight to ten different languages because he traveled across the Khyber Pass from Afghanistan down into Sri Lanka and India and Pakistan to learn what the quality of each spice was in the place where it was made so that he could reflect that to the customers. And I thought, what, wouldn't that be wonderful if all of us, uh, when we bought spices, were imparted with that incredible cultural knowledge about it and that spice traders today have the opportunity to go to each place where their herbs and spices came from. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating book. It's a combination of um, cultural history, uh, regular history, uh, geography, um, uh, territory studies, um, sociology <laughs> I mean that's why I ask you what hat do you really wear <laughs> you have all of those well, well the funny thing is that when it came out first uh, a, a rather stuffy British food historian says my god this isn't food history it's something else <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, no, and I thought that was so funny like he was trying to come contain what food history was in a salt shaker, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let it open up to other possibilities. And fortunately, the book is back in print, uh, in paperback, and it was featured on a wonderful show I did with two spice traders for BBC Radio uh, about a year ago, and I've just learned so much by being around people in the spice trade, they're, they're such wonderful people, as I'm sure your own uh, travels have, have brought you to. Well, now, who, who actually invented pasta, spaghetti? Was it, was it Marco Polo, or was it, <laughs> or was it the Chinese? 
Well, you know, that's a gradient rather than an either-or story. So that, oh, okay. that we know that there were very, very ancient uh, kinds of pasta in the Middle East and Persia before Marco Polio, Polo. So that is sort of like uh, urban folklore that Marco Polo brought <laughs> yeah. uh, pasta to Italy. It, it, it makes a nice, clean story, and there's very little cleanliness in history. It's made for television, and I believe it was. <laughs> now, <laughs> your other book is, is, is just coming out. And uh, it's Jesus for Farmers and Fishers, uh, Justice for All Those Marginalized by Our Food System. And page one, you have um, Jesus for Farmers and Fishers, and then you go on, and farm workers, food service workers, ranchers, lobster catchers, shepherders, cowboys, foragers, and it goes on and on and on, to field gleaners, soup kitchen ladlers, <laughs> so, what what is your mission in writing this book? I think it's to remind us how many different kinds of hands bring us our daily bread and wine. That that there's so many people that play important roles in bringing us our food that are sort of hidden from our perception. And that many of those people are among those most likely to need to go to a soup kitchen or a food bank in this day and age. That the very people who harvest our food and process it in a meat packing plant or a, or a fish cannery are the people most likely to need food relief because they make so little doing their work that they can hardly afford to put bread on their own tables. Well, you're, you're right on topic for how we are today, which you, you mentioned in your book that um, uh, the, the time in, in Jesus' time in Galilee is probably not very much different from where we are now in terms of uh, food insecurity and, and um, marginalization. I want to be blunt that we're in one of the first worst farm crises and fishing crises in human history right now. And it was worsened by COVID, but it was already pretty bad that we have the highest rates of debt among farmers and fishers at any point in human history relative to what they make off their yields. And yet one of the first farm crises was exactly when, when, uh, Jesus walked among the farmers and fishers in Galilee. And in this book, I'm in no way trying to missionize anyone uh, to become a Christian. It's more about understanding what we can learn from the, those parables of that time that were directed to farmers and fishers to try to help ease their suffering and find another way of dealing with the world during a time when Rome was really extracting all their best products and leaving just the crumbs for the local pop populace. Yeah, it, it, Michael Pollan just had a, um, a, a column in the, the Washington Post, I think it was, um, a, about how bad 
things are but in the food industry at this point, and not so much that as the food distribution, the inequities and so forth. So um, and, and he has his descriptions of why this happened, the disruptions in, in food distribution. But I think his, his view of where we are in, in terms of our foodscape right now um, matches up with yours. As does uh, a wonderful thing that was in New York Times in December by uh, Mark Bittman and uh, my friend Ricardo Salvador from Union of Concerned Scientists that said, it's about time that we get a Secretary of Agriculture who understands food justice and that that it's not uh, to villainize any farmers or agribusinesses, it's to get them the help that they need at this point in history and even though uh, Secretary of Agriculture Vilsack wasn't their <laughs> priority choice for that job, he'd already served uh, uh, you know, over eight years ago and, and uh, was uh, more a Secretary of Agriculture for corn and soy than for small farmers I hope that Secretary Vilsack gets how critical this point in time is for making sure that farmers and fishermen survive. I mean, we have the oh, highest yeah. rates of suicide of any profession among these these farmers and fishers. Be sure to send him an email, Gary. <laughs> yeah, we have a we have an op-ed coming out in a major paper about these issues. Uh, too, so I'm grateful for everyone who speaks up about these issues. How can we enjoy being at a table, eating delicious food, when we know that the people who brought it to us are really suffering, whether it's waiters and bartenders or whether it's uh, the people that harvest our tomatoes in Mexico or our, or pack our meat in Iowa? And it's it's just that I love food and I love the sensual delights that we all celebrate. But if we isolate ourselves from the suffering that is involved in bringing us that food, I think we have an incomplete picture of the world. I think you're right. And I think that uh, your book coming out, um, so listeners, you, you could go to the one book and learn about spices and basically about um, cultural transference, cooperation, um, development in Cuban camels and caravans. And you could also learn a lot about exactly where we are with our injustice and inequities in our food system today. And uh, it's, it's amazing that you thought to go back to um, biblical times to, to actually explain where we are now. Gary Paul Nabhan. Uh, listeners, you need to get these books and, and come, get up to date on where we are exactly in our food system right now. Do you agree, Gary, huh? Oh, I love how you frame that. Thank you so much. It's, you know, it's just not a neither or for me. I, um, I love the pleasures of growing food and eating it and uh, putting my own pickles up, and I, I make uh, 
uh, shrubs, uh, the the syrups uh, yeah. from the fruit that I grow in my orchard. So I'm not at all um, uh, political about food in the sense that that I think uh, that these political issues trump our joy of food. It's just the opposite. I want our full unbridled joy to be in the context that we're helping keep our food system healthy so that everyone can enjoy it, just not the people that make more than the rest of us. And so it's, to me, uh, the, the real motivation for being interested in food was the pleasures that my grandfather as a fruit peddler first uh, inoculated me with. Uh, uh, the love of food is is uh, an inoculation of a culture, just like uh, making yogurt. Yogurt is an inoculation of a culture. Uh, we can't get it by reading a book. We have to get it. Well, by, but I uh, think that we should steer to get a head start. We should steer the listeners to reading your books, and I hope that this new one has much success, Gary. And I thank you for well, taking the time to talk to us. Well, good I meeting you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today. Um, don't forget to file your taxes. This is a special short program, so you have plenty of time. Yeah, and beware the eyes of March. tomorrow. Beware the eyes of tomorrow. Beware. Watch out, Julius, baby. <laughs> Which after a man called Brutus, he's going to stab you in the back. And we, we of course. I think he's stabbing in the front, doesn't <laughs> I, I think Cassius probably stabbed him in the front. I know, I mean, I, I was in, in the back. Latin play, and my Latin. Um, Go ahead. I had just one sentence to say in the play. Et te bruta. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I said, et tu bruta. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I think it's correct. That tape works. Yeah. I don't know. The next time we answer this guest is Lady Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, there we go. Next week, same time, same, same channel or whatever. You never can tell. Maybe, 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 then, maybe you'll go to your stress fracture by then. Yeah. Bye bye. <laughs> we, we can only hope, right? And, and, we hope you have a wonderful week, and of course we'll bring you a highly entertaining program again, like we always do next Sunday, just seven days from now.